Well, today is Palm Sunday, right? It's right. And so we begin today the most um, celebrated week in the Christian calendar when we march towards the death of our Savior, which is just strange to even say when you think about it, right? That we're marching towards the celebration of a death. But more than that, we march toward next Sunday when we walk into this place and we celebrate Easter Sunday morning. The Lord is risen indeed. Every Sunday we gather is a declaration of the fact that the Lord is risen. Amen? I mean, every Sunday we come together, we are declaring that the Lord is not dead, that Jesus is not in the grave, that He is alive forevermore. And this morning, as we are going through this, um, this series of messages on I Am Second, last week we kind of started this thought process of what does it look like to live second, and we talk specifically about humility. Now, I didn't use that word a lot, but that's what we talked about from Philippians chapter 2 and the demotions that Jesus encountered in coming to earth, that he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he willingly gave that up, that he became nothing, that he then went lower than that and became a human in the form of a man, like a man, in every way a man, that he, in the midst of that then, became obedient unto death, even death, on the most horrifying, humiliating device ever created for death, death on a cross. And then as believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to live in a way that glorifies Him by becoming humble. That our mind ought to be that way. This week, I want to kind of continue that thought process of how do we live second? How do we live as not first in our life, putting Christ first in our life. And I want to do it by looking at the moments in Jesus' life on that first part of the Holy Week. Now, um, there are all kinds of calendars out there you can kind of see. And some of you this week may want to search online or look in some books and try to find what he did each day and kind of do some devotional thoughts Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then as we come next Sunday. But one of the things that is interesting to me is how quickly the goodwill of Palm Sunday begins to fade away. Now, you remember the scene from Palm Sunday, right? Right? Jesus is getting ready to come in. He gets the disciples. He goes and tells them, hey, go get a donkey. You'll find a donkey here. And they go get a donkey and they come back. And Jesus gets on the donkey. And and you can just imagine For a group of people that had been waiting centuries for a deliverer. Who had been waiting for generations for God's Messiah to show up. And in the midst of everything, they're just waiting for Jesus. They've heard about Him. They hear the stories. They know what He's been doing. And many of them are waiting for Jesus to make it official that I am the one. And as the week kicks off, the holiest week of the year for them, Passover week, as the week kicks off, suddenly Jesus enters. Palm waving in the air. Cries of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, son of David, Messiah, chosen one, anointed, king, Ruler, 
as the cries fill the skies, the ruckus begins to draw the attention of those inside who are wondering what the week will hold. You know, it's pretty easy to kind of understand how a week will unfold when you've already seen the week unfold. Right? And so for those of us that read this story, we know the ending. It's like opening the first chapter of a book, you already know the ending to. Anybody here read the last pages of a book after you read the first couple? Thank you, Sherry. I appreciate that hand. I don't. I think it's a sin. But I appreciate that hand. You know, we know the ending. So we don't get the tension that's there. These people are screaming and yelling for Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Son of David, the One who comes in the name of the Lord. And those inside that are in power can only imagine that that means He's coming for them. Now, Jesus obviously didn't mean He was going to set up His kingdom in an earthly way at this moment. Amen? I mean, that's not what He meant. But that's what everybody else thought he meant. So he walks into town. Rides into town. It says in verse 10. I love this. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Saying, who is this? Now, here's the thing. Most of them knew who he was. It wasn't like he was unknown, right? I mean, he had fed several thousand people. He had healed multiple people. He had been getting crowds for years that were coming to hear him teach. They knew who he was. This wasn't a question of, this is a brand new guy I've never heard of. The question they're asking is, what's he going to do? Who is it? In Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, it tells us that the whole city was shaking and the crowds keep telling them it's Jesus from Galilee, the prophet. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The scene is set. Tensions are high. Now, now, the truth is, if Jesus wanted to diffuse the tensions, the first thing he probably would do would go in and give one of his talks about love and peace and understanding and tolerance, right? Jesus didn't talk a whole lot about tolerance, by the way, but if he were here today, that's what people would expect. Those of you that have your Bibles over to Matthew, what, what's the next thing he does, though? He clears the temple. Now, if you're trying to quell the tension, do you think clearing the temple is the next step? No. I'm thinking back to Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but division, conflict, war. So most of you know this story, but it's an amazing thing. So Jesus went into the temple complex. And this is one of those stories that I both love and sometimes have difficulty comprehending. He goes into the temple complex and drives out all those buying and selling in the temple. I mean, you get the visual image here. He's overturning the money changers' tables. Now, they, they had this, this system 
where in the temple, everybody had to pay a temple tax. Uh, they had to, whenever they came into the temple, they had to pay. But the problem is they could not bring any of their money from outside in because all the money from the outside had pictures of emperors or rulers. And they could not bring that into the temple because they couldn't bring what they considered false idols or rulers other than God in. And so right outside was supposed to be a place where they could change money so that they could get what they needed to get to go in to pay the temple. Now, so you can imagine it would have been a table. Now, you also realize they didn't have cash registers right then, back then, right? No electronic debit machines. And so the coins would have been all over the table and in bags and all of that. And so Jesus turning over tables would have thrown things in the air, literally. Stuff would have been flying everywhere. Coins would have been going all over the place. It would have caused a major scene in the midst of the center of where the whole thing is set up for the next week. And he said to them, he also turned over the chairs of all those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of thieves. So here's the question. What's Jesus so upset about here? Was it just they've got money around the temple? Is that what he's upset about? I don't think so. What's he upset about here? Here's what he's upset about, I think. Two things. First of all, he's upset at the compromise that has come from the religious establishment that care more about making funds than they do about people worshiping. Surprised I didn't get a lot of amens there. Where churches, institutions of worship, care more about the money coming in than the people actually worshiping God. Because, see... Not only what we know from tradition is where they have in these exchange places out there, but they were taking advantage of people in the exchange rates. Charging an exorbitant amount to exchange. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country where you had to exchange money? Maybe been there? You know what I've discovered? I try to exchange money in America. You know why? Because I don't have a clue if they're doing me right when Brazil. It's the only place I've ever exchanged, and I think the people there are generally pretty good, but you don't know. These people come into the temple, they've got to have this money to get there, and Jesus sees that they are taking advantage of those that are trying to come and worship. But here's the second reason. I think this is the most important reason. Because the people that were changing money here were making it difficult for those who were outside the Jewish faith to come explore the Lord. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Here's what's interesting. He quotes a passage out of Isaiah, right? You have made, this is supposed to be my house of prayer. That comes straight out of Isaiah. If you go to the Isaiah passage, if you look it up in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, what it says is that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now you say, well, Jesus left that part off. Well, here's the thing. In their day and time, you didn't have to quote the whole thing. People knew the Psalms well enough that if you just gave them the first few words of the verse you were talking about, they would automatically know, oh, he's talking about Isaiah 56, 7. Now, they wouldn't have necessarily called it 56, 7, but they would have said, oh, and he's saying that our house, the house of the Lord is supposed to be a place for all nations. Now, that is very significant because what people think is 
that these money changers were set up in what was called the court of the Gentiles, which is the only access area of the temple for the people from other nations that were investigating Yahweh, God. And these temple money changers were making it difficult for those outsiders to make their way in and to worship the Lord. And so what he's upset about here is not just the exchange of money, but that it is making it difficult for those who were distant from the faith to come to know who Jesus is. You want to know what it means to live second? First of all, it means that we care enough about people that we do not make it difficult in any way for them to come to faith or come to explore or come to look at who Jesus is. Jesus is fired up here. There's no other way to describe it, is it? This is not Jesus' meek and mild picture on the wall of a Sunday school class. This is upset, angry Jesus turning tables over, running the money changers out, clearing the temple getting rid of hypocrisy and those that are keeping people distant from the Lord. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, he talked this idea about hypocrisy and people making it look like they're trying to help people to worship and taking advantage of them. In Mark 7, verse 6, he talks about these Pharisees and religious leaders and those that are in the temple system and says that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Living seconds means focusing not on the rules and regulations that keep people from worshiping God, but focusing on the people. In fact, look, it continues in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children in the complex cheering, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, angry, mad. And tells him, stop them. Don't you hear what they're saying? Quit. Make them stop. These guys are so focused on controlling their religion that they were not allowing the presence of God himself to radically alter the way they worshiped and the way they lived. Verse 18. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city. He was hungry. Just a note, he, he would leave and go out to Bethany and stay and then go back and forth between the city probably because it was very crowded in the city and also he needed some time away. But in verse 18, he gets up in the morning and there's no McDonald's drive-in on the way to get there. So he's hungry. So seeing a lone fig tree by the road, now I just wanted to let you know, and some of you are going to think less of me about this, I'd have to be really hungry to think figs look good, all right? Maybe you're not. Now, Fig Newton, that's another deal. But He went up to it. And found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. Isn't this a strange way to start the week? Right? I mean, he's throwing tables over. He's got money flying in the air. He's yelling at the religious leaders. And then he's cursing a defenseless fig tree. Poor old fig tree out there. So what's going on here? Why is he mad at the fig tree? 
There's no fruit. What's a fig tree supposed to do? Bear fruit. So if Jesus looks at the fig tree and all he sees are leaves, which are pretty, but no fruit, he gets mad. He gets upset. Do you think there's something besides the fig tree at work here? I hope so. I don't think it'd be in the Bible if it wasn't. So if the point of the fig tree is he gets mad when a tree that is supposed to produce fruit doesn't produce fruit, what do you think the meaning for us is? What are we supposed to do? Bear fruit. we got a lot of believers in America today that are fruitless. That aren't bearing fruit. Or they look like the buds on the flowers around my house. They are very early in their development. Let me ask you just a quick question. Because living second means that you bear fruit, that you show that you are a follower of Jesus. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you have to have works in order to be saved. In fact, the scripture teaches us the opposite. Works do not save. God saves. But it also teaches us that works are identifying marks of the fact that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, let me also say that works or Fruit generally is not bared by things you can mark off on a checklist. You know what I mean? Like church checklist, involved in this, went to that, got my Bible, carried it with me. Fruit is the visible evidence that God is working in and through your life. It is the evidence in your attitude that you are growing increasingly more in touch with the spirit and love that the Lord has. It means you are growing increasingly more passionate about the things with which God is most passionate about. It means the things that break God's heart breaks yours. It means the things that angers God angers you. It means the things that makes God's heart jump with joy and makes your heart jump. Fruit is the external evidence that God is working on your inner being. It is relationships that become more and more centered on glorifying God. In your marriage, you become more and more centered on serving your partner and glorifying God. In your relationships and friendships, you become more and more concerned about the well-being of others and glorifying God. It means that you are constantly seeking those who are outside the kingdom of God, outside of a relationship with Jesus, and you are working to make sure that you have communicated with them what the gospel is all about. Fruit is the external evidence that God is working internally on your life. And people say to me sometimes, well, pastor, you know, I, know, I hear you talking about fruit and we need to inspect our lives, but we can't inspect other people. I mean, we, the Bible says do not judge. Does the Bible say that? It does, but people take it out of context, but that's another sermon someday. I had a professor, you've heard me say this before, I think, but I had a professor in college that used to say to me all the time, God didn't call us to be judges, but he did call us to be fruit inspectors. There are a lot of people in America today that call themselves Christians. They don't have any fruit. They're just as cranky today as they were when they walked down an aisle. In fact, truth be told, they're crankier. Can I get an amen out there? Just as judgmental and uncaring and set in their ways. 
refusal to change. They just who they are. That's just who I am, Pastor. Well, here's the thing that I know about the Lord. I am who I am. Not Papa, but I'm Lyle. I am who I am, but I'm not who I will be. And my prayer is that God is constantly changing me into the likeness of who he is. And that fruit is continually being bared in my life. Anybody that says, I just don't like change, hasn't been along for the ride with the Lord recently. Because the Lord is in the business of continually changing. Anybody that says, I don't need to change, then you must have reached the perfection before heaven. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to some people that think that they've already obtained. And Paul says, well, good for you. I'm glad. I'll be glad when I get there someday. I'm not there yet, but I'm glad you've been perfect already. And part of that change is that our fruit continues to be bared. Jesus walks up and this fig tree is barren except for the leaves. You know what's interesting about that? Is that Jesus didn't know it was barren until what? He got right up to it. Because the outward appearance looked pretty good. I mean, from a distance, he saw it. And he thought, I've, I've got breakfast. There's no McDonald's drive through but I see a fig tree. And I can tell from a distance it looks healthy, it looks good. Everything on the outside looks good. But when he gets there, what happens? There's nothing. And there are a lot of believers in America today that call themselves believers that aren't only not shedding fruit, not showing fruit in their lives. They look like from a distance that they're doing everything right, but their heart is far from the Lord. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he enters with people shouting, Son of David, King, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the highest. But what's interesting is. Many of those same people by Friday. Would show that they were just leaves and no fig. As they stood and yelled. Crucify him. For the same man. Let me ask you a question today. Is your life authentic? It's a word that gets thrown around a lot. It just means, does it match? Is it true? Is it good? Is it right? Is your life authentic? Is your relationship with the Lord authentic? If you walked up to you today and you were that fig tree, would he find all leaves and no figs? Or is there fruit in your life that shows evidence of a relationship with the Lord that is growing and evolving and changing you on a consistent basis? Are you authentic? Jesus constantly was looking and asking people if they were what they seemed to be. In fact, one of his most Pointed criticisms came against the Pharisees when he said they called them hypocrites, actors, players. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Are you authentic? Let's pray together.